couple of years ago now when Captain Marvel came out. And seeing the way that people were talking about this movie as though it was the first time ever that, you know, little girls could watch a superhero film and feel connected to the story was infuriating to me. It was like, you know, there are lots and lots more stories out there and they are for little girls too. And the reason we connect to them is because there's something human in it. You know, the sense of adventure and the sense of fear. You know, we connect with what these characters are feeling because they're people, um, or, you know, hobbits as the case may be. But the idea is that you don't need to share these surface level identity characteristics with somebody to find their journey compelling. Welcome to the New Flesh podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. How are you? I'm I'm good, Ricky. So uh, who have we got on the cards today? Kat Rosenfield, author, podcaster, fantastic. I, our conversation we, with her was um, just absolutely fascinating. We don't get to talk about books and fiction and storytelling. We did throw her some curveballs as well. We talked about some pretty random stuff. We actually geeked out on Game of Thrones <laughs> We did, well. yeah, which was excellent. That was unstoppable. I couldn't I couldn't help myself. Yep. So as you can tell, I'm all a flutter. It was, uh, it was wonderful and yeah, we've got to come back. All right, well, that's it. Let's do it. Kat Rosenfield is a published author, cultural critic, and podcaster. Her work has appeared in Wired, Vulture, Entertainment Weekly, Playboy, Reason, and Unheard. She is the co-host of a weekly podcast called Feminine Chaos with Phoebe maltz Bovey. Her 2021 novel, No One Will Miss Her, has been nominated for the Edgar Award, and she has a new book in the works, which we will definitely ask her about. Kat, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Americans have a weird fascination with the British royal family. With the Queen's passing, we've seen a number of different takes, uh, some praising the Queen for her tireless service, others seemingly dancing on her grave. Uh, college professor Uju Anya, and I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, she tweeted, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. Now, what have you made of America's outpouring of grief and out rage. Shouldn't Americans just shrug and get on with things? Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, the the response to the Queen's death seems to highlight to me the fact that all of our engagement as Americans with the British monarchy really takes place through the lens of pop culture. Uh, we mostly watch these as like dramatized stories. I mean, it's, you know, historical nonfiction or whatever, but it's we watch it dramatized on television. We watch The Crown, you know, so we understand it through that lens and that context. And I think that it's easy then to forget that these are actually real people. Um, and it's easy then for the expression of incredibly over-the-top sort of malice, um, like Uju Anya's tweet, to find a place in the conversation, just because none of it really seems especially real to us. Yes, that that tweet was like wrestling heel behavior. Like it was, it was real. Just you know, riling up the crowd, looking and staring in their eyes and saying. I'm the bad guy now. Yeah, that's funny. I, uh, that's, a, that's a good way to think about it. I was thinking that, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that if, um, like, Cersei Lannister had said it on Game of Thrones, we would have found it over the top. We would have been like, come on. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. Well, we, we, we have some questions about Game of Thrones we might get to a bit later. But just on this whole royal thing, you've written about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and their interview with Oprah. Uh, since then, there have been more allegations of racism. Uh, Meghan's released her saccharine podcast where she whines about how hard her life is. Uh, they left the royal kingdom claiming a desire for a, a more privacy, but they haven't stopped pushing their initiatives, their Netflix shows and work charities. Megan is slowly revealing herself not to be the Cinderella we thought she was, but more the evil queen. Is anyone in America still rooting for Megan? Uh, and as an aside, is Harry the biggest cuck in the history of cucks? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that particular question. Uh, I'm just going to I'm going to just defer on the question of whether Harry is a cuck. Uh, I've never said that word out loud. Wow, it's got kind of a nice mouthfeel though. Um, anyway, but uh, Megan, yeah, you know, I mean, she actually. I think that lots and lots of people are still rooting for her because she is sort of a an iteration of this Cinderella story, but kind of with a feminist twist. It's like instead of, you know, going and and being chosen by the prince and living the rest of her life happily ever after in a palace, she took the prince back to America, estranged him from his family. Like she wins, you know, and um, although I don't particularly feel one way or another about her, I think that there's something about that narrative that is compelling, especially to an American audience. I thought she looked fabulous, <laughs> i got to say. <laughs> it's, just, it's just as an aside. I looked at her, because like, it's been such bad press, and when I saw her outfit, I was like, oh, stunning. At the funeral? Excellent work. Yeah, well, yes, at the funeral. So is that is that bad taste? To... No, anyway, I mean, we'll you know, it's 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 good that she had a good funeral outfit. I mean, imagine the scandal if she had worn a bad one. Uh, yes, True. I could, I could. Those stories would write themselves. Well, um, perhaps we'll move on from the royals. Uh, look, one of the main reasons we've got you on the show. So we've complained for a while now that we're in a bit of a dark age in terms of art. You know, books, movies, uh, music. Creativity seems to be under attack from forces internal and external, uh, forces intent on on pushing ideas and outcomes from, from the top down. It's sort of like a, you know, it, my view is that it sometimes seems like a fevered, morally upright snitch culture that sort of has zero reverence for the past. But I, I'm interested in your take on, on the current uh, state of the arts. What, what, what do you think's going on out there, Kat? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. I mean, as you, you talked about reverence for the past, one of the things that is driving so much of pop culture right now actually is uh, almost a, a sort of a rose-colored glasses idea of the past. Like there's this sort of nostalgia, but not for, um, you know, anything before like 1980. It's all rooted in um, the nostalgia for properties and stories and characters that the people who are making movies and television and, and writing books now, the stories that they grew up with. So like Ghostbusters um, or the sort of, or E.T. Um, you have like the sort of uh, Spielbergian collection of ragtag kids thing that's manifesting itself now in Stranger Things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that you know, on the one hand, yes, it's true. There's been this quest to sort of problematize anything that was created, you know, in the, the dark ages of 30 years ago um, for having less than progressive political themes embedded in it. But at the same time, there's this intense desire to like recreate the experience that uh, the people who are making films now had when they watched something like 
The Hobbit as a kid um, or, you know, or Ghostbusters as a kid. Um, they're sort of trying to get back to something that captured them in their youth. And I think do think that it's actually it's it's making the entire landscape very samey you know we have now nothing really i mean all the the big sort of tentpole blockbuster movies are coming out of you know two particular comic book universes and that's sort of that's sort of what's there now it's it's really um even as budgets for films like this have gotten so much bigger the range of what you're seeing on screen has gotten quite small what do you think about the current notion of representation in in art? Because that that get, that term gets thrown around uh, endlessly at the moment. Yeah, it's a, to me, it's a facile way of thinking about an issue that has legitimate aspects to it. I mean, if you want to talk about what's happening in Hollywood, obviously that's a, a very it's an industry dominated by people who come from a particular sort of background. And that's not even a racial background. It's more people with connections, people who have family wealth or family ties to Hollywood already. And that's who ends up working in the industry, you know, by and large. Uh, And people who have that type of background also tend to look a certain way. They tend to be white. Um, But that's a more of a class issue. Anyway, um, so the the thing with diversity in Hollywood is that you you want ideally, you know, a greater range of people to be able to work on films like behind the scenes. You want people, you know, operating the camera or writing the stories or, um, you know, all of all of this stuff. I mean, a a movie production crew is a, a huge thing. There are thousands of people involved in it. You'd like to see better opportunities for a wider variety of people on that front. But representation obsesses with one thing and one thing only, which is what are the people on the screen look like? And I find that very frustrating because I think it's just a really facile way of trying to um, describe how people actually engage with art and engage with storytelling. It's it's just not accurate to the the way that human beings connect with stories that you first look for somebody on screen who looks like you. That's just not how it works. That's not how it happens. Mm, it seems to be built on the as you say. Uh, that seems to be the 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 most. The stupidest thing about it is is I, I think back to everything I watched well that I've ever watched and you know obviously because we're straight white guys so we're sort of Lebet noir figures <laughs> so saying like oh yes I identified with uh, you know uh, baby and dirty dancing or whatever that, that doesn't hold much resonance now but it's true I watched that movie and I used to get busted up about that yeah, or- nobody puts you in a corner huh <laughs> <laughs> Nobody puts me in a corner, that's for sure. But I bet, uh, you know, and this might be even more controversial, but when I was like a teenager in the in the 90s, I mean, I used to watch, yeah, Malcolm X over and over again and stuff. And like I read it, all, you know, read his biography because of the autobiography, because of the um, the movie and all of that. And I, I don't know, like it, it didn't occur to me that I wasn't, um, I should stay in my lane. Yeah, no, of course not. I mean, I had a a moment um, with respect to this stuff a couple of years ago now when Captain Marvel came out and seeing the way that people were talking about this movie as though it was the first time ever that, you know, little girls could watch a superhero film and feel connected to the story was infuriating to me. It was like, you know, there are lots and lots more stories out there and they are for little girls too. And the reason we connect to them is because there's something human in it. You know, the sense of adventure and the 
a sense of fear. You know, we connect with what these characters are feeling because they're people um, or, you know, hobbits, as the case may be. But the idea is that you don't need to share these surface level identity characteristics with somebody to find their journey compelling. Well, and frustrating us even more is that so, you know, you need to see the thing to to identify with the thing, but then you need to be the thing to act the thing <laughs> that's right <laughs> so you need to be, so for example like if, if you're if it's philadelphia and we're doing philadelphia now the remake you need to be we need to make sure that you're gay follow you after work and say okay are you really gay <laughs> do you really have aids <laughs> like we've got to go through the whole the whole thing so it's just as silly really yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an interesting aspect of this that's happening in um, in the world of fiction writing right now, where authors and it seems like it's always women who are especially being being charged with this sort of like extra level of scrutiny. But they are being asked to, you know, expose really private aspects of their lives or their identities or their experiences in order to prove that they have the right to tell a certain story. Um, there was this thing that happened, uh, again, I guess maybe a couple of years ago, um, with a book called My Dark Vanessa, where this author had written a, a novel about a woman re-examining her relationship with a teacher that she had had when she was a teenager. So it was you know, one of these student-teacher relationships. And, you know, she was coming to it through a different lens now, thinking, was this exploitive? And somebody accused her of, um, another writer accused her of like appropriating her memoir. This was a book that basically nobody had read. Um, and, you know, and, and appropriating her experience. And this poor woman had to come out publicly and say, no, I actually slept with a teacher when I was a teenager. So I, you know, I do know what I'm talking about. But she shouldn't have had to do that. It, it was really just, you know, repulsive that she had to. Yeah, that's uh, that's dreadful. And it would have been traumatic and, and would have implicated the teacher. And I mean, it's, that's almost a movie in itself. <laughs> so uh, that's 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 terrible. Why can't you just write and people read it and in, either it's good or it's not? I mean, I guess the answer to that is that you can. Um, the choice to participate in this aspect of the discourse surrounding art at the moment is still a choice. And if the worst people on Twitter want to come after you for your, you know, decision to use your imagination as a writer or to, you know, decline to answer intrusive questions about your private life, you can still ignore them. Um, you know, it, it, I guess, depends a little bit on whether you're in a social or professional bubble where, that type of criticism carries a lot of weight. I'm fortunate that, you know, for me, um, not that anyone has come after me about this, but if they did, you know, I, I feel like I would be comfortably able to ignore it. Mm. Well, you've got real world experience in this field because you've you've published a suspense novel called No One Will Miss Her. And and I'm interested to know what, what was the process like writing this novel? Uh, because, you know, at, at one point in history, you only had to worry about the paralysis of living up to the great works. These days, you've got that added paralysis that, that can come when you start to imagine which groups you'll offend and, 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 and how you'll get docked. So, you know, how did you conquer this problem or, or did it just sort of come naturally to you? I mean, the question of whether my identity aligned with the identity of the characters is something I just genuinely did not think about. Um, it's not a concern for me as a writer. 
Um, as far as the, the process of, of creating the story, it's an idea that I had, oh gosh, at this point, it must have been like six or seven years ago. And I, I sat on it for a long time, sort of noodling on it and, and developing it way before I ever started to actually write the story because I felt like I had something... I had something good and I wanted to make sure I did it justice. Um, this is my first novel for adults. Prior to this, I was a young adult fiction writer. Um, my last young adult book came out in 2014. So this is a pivot for me to, you know, writing more adult fare. Did you, did you employ a sensitivity reader? No. <laughs> could you, could you perhaps uh, explain to our audience what, what is a sensitivity reader? Okay. A sensitivity reader is a sort of a consultant hired during the manuscript stage of a book, either by the author or by the author's publisher. Um, and the idea is that that person is going to be a person from a given background, usually a marginalized racial, ethnic, sexual, gender, whatever background, you know, all those, all those categories that we consider of great importance right now. Uh, and this mm. person is going to read the book in which you've written characters that share that person's background, and they're going to tell you if you got the characters, quote unquote, right, or if you're being offensive. And um, yeah, this is something that started in young adult fiction. And we can talk if, if you want about, you know, sort of the origins of that. It's an interesting story. Um, but it's now starting... I, had, I, didn't know, I had no idea that it started there. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of this stuff incubates in young adult fiction. Anytime you have a moral panic, um, you know, the fact that there's content aimed at teenagers makes it a good place to kind of get that going for it to take root because it's very easy to invoke the specter of a vulnerable young person, you know, reading the wrong thing and being harmed by it. Sometimes I'm worried about the, the when they say what the right thing is, I'm really worried about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they go, the, the right thing for them to be reading is about all this stuff. And then I look at it and I go, oh, geez, that sounds niche <laughs> i mean at this point if kids are reading it all i think it's it's a, a net win it's true that's true <laughs> that's true yes no i'm not one of those parents at the uh, meeting it, it's interesting though like because perhaps 20 30 years ago uh that sort of concern that moral panic would have come from the conservative side of of politics but now we're seeing it more on the progressive side you know um do, do you find that interesting yeah, and discouraging. I mean, especially as somebody who, you know, works in a creative field and is old enough to remember when it was the religious right who was trying to, you know, basically take away all of the stories that were fun or edgy or, you know, or spoke to us as teenagers. Um, to see how the script has flipped is odd and not great. I miss those days, <laughs> you know. They, they were... They were... I don't know. It was a, it was a, it was something I understood. I was like, I want to listen to Marilyn Manson, and they want to ban it. They want to ban him. So and that's simple. It's a simple narrative I can follow. This new thing, I I don't know the rules. You know, like people who were great are turning around and sort of you know uh, telling me what to do. It's it's hard to get track of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that it if you sort of look into it, there's a method to the madness, but. As much as this stuff is, in some cases, genuinely rooted in a desire to, you know, do what's best for young readers, it's also fueled by a lot of professional competition and jealousy in an industry that is contracting, where there are few opportunities, you know, where people are always looking for ways to kind of 
give themselves a leg up in the playing field by disqualifying whoever they perceive to be their competition. So it's complicated. Well, you mentioned sensitivity rates, sensitivity rates and, and, and the origins in, in wire. Would you mind uh, circling back to that for a second and, and, and uh, filling us in? Yeah. So um, young adult fiction, gosh, let's see where to start. How far back do I want to go? We'll talk about, let's talk about 2014. 2014 was when there was the start of this big kind of diversity reckoning in young adult fiction. There was um, a study released by Lee and Lowe that um, uncovered trends surrounding diversity in YA. And what they found was that something like only 10% of the books that were being written included, quote unquote, diverse characters. So, you know, characters from like non-white, non-straight backgrounds. This caused a scandal, which is reasonable. Um, and so immediately people started writing many, many more diverse characters into their books. Um, the problem with that is that the authorship of these books was still extremely predominantly white, middle-aged women. So you had now all of these books about diverse characters being written by a non-diverse uh, group of writers. This is obviously not what the people who were, you know, activating on behalf of diversity had in mind. And at this point, this idea emerged that it wasn't enough to include diverse characters in your books, that you needed to share your identity characteristics with those characters. Or if you didn't, you were basically, it was like a stolen valor sort of a thing. You were stealing or appropriating an experience and identity that didn't belong to you. You were in doing so taking up space on the shelf from a marginalized writer who could have told this story better than you, more authentically than you. And the idea really at that time was if you want to write a character who doesn't share your ethnic or racial or sexual background, don't. You're doing something bad. But if you're going to, then at least employ a sensitivity reader to tell you if you're getting that character right. Obviously, this leads, you know, in its, like, if you take it to the end, to its logical conclusion, this leads to an incredible narrowing of what kind of characters people are allowed to write. I mean, you can slice that down as thin as you like until it's about, you know, basically nothing being available to any writer except autobiographical novels about a character who is basically them. Um, but in the meantime, this notion of sensitivity reading did give, um, well, I mean, for publishers, it gave people from marginalized backgrounds a little slice of space at the table. It allowed them to kind of point to to the inclusion of sensitivity readers. And they're freelancers, by the way, and they don't get paid very much. So you can hire like a ton of them. You could hire a hundred of them for just a few thousand dollars. So publishers were able to point to this and say, look, look at all we're doing for diversity. And I think that for that reason, um, sensitivity reading caught on as is sort of an industry standard. And again, it's not across the board, but it's it's starting to be more prevalent, even as it was initially created as a sort of a, almost a check on people who wanted to write characters who, you know, who were outside their own identities to make them think twice about doing so, if that makes sense. That was a really long-winded answer. Sorry. No, that's, that's perfect. Uh, quick question. Now, obviously, these sensitivity readers, where are they coming from? Are they, uh, apart from being a, a certain 
ethnicity or, or, or uh, you know, gender identity or, or whatever, uh, are, are they skilled in the craft of writing? Are they, are they able to help you solve creative problems or, or is it just critique we're, we're getting? Uh, yeah, they, they're not writers. Um, they, you know, it's interesting you say, like, where do they come from? There are people who seek out this type of work who advertise themselves as sensitivity readers. There are databases where you can, you know, basically click a bunch of boxes and find somebody who matches the characteristics that you're looking for. The question is, what kind of person volunteers for this job, like imagines themselves to be really good to do this job that's going to be a particular type of person a professional offended person you said it not me (laughs) (laughs) no i just think this whole thing is so epically stupid like 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 i i don't understand how how you would even come up with this idea how you could sit in a room with with a lot of with presumably college educated people and they would come up with this idea and that everyone would just let it happen and that no one would look around and say, hey, wait, do you know, if we think this through, th- there's there's so many hazards in this. It's it, it's going, it's it, this is this is anti-creativity. Like, we don't want people, we don't, we don't want Ricky writing, you know, um, the Martin Luther King story. But at the same time, you know, there are some people who, who uh, might be able to pull it off. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, you know, like the, the rules are... I just think that this idea is profound. I, I'm getting really petulant about it, but but I, I I can't help but think that this idea is really really stupid. Yeah, no, I think it is, and I think maybe um, you know to refine the point a little bit, it essentially makes writing fiction impossible. The other thing about it too um, that's just worth noting is. Even though we often talk about this in terms of the impact on, you know, white male straight writers who are being told that they can't write X, Y, and Z, um, this is not just something that impacts people from, like, groups that we're supposedly unsympathetic to, because the result of this sort of identitarian ethos in storytelling is that writers from marginalized backgrounds get pigeonholed into only writing stories about characters who are like them. And a lot of them don't want to do that. And um, I I wrote for reason about sensitivity readers. Um, and in the course of, of doing this, I interviewed a guy, Alberto Galaba, who is a writer of Filipino descent, but he wrote this great novel called University Thugs that takes place at um, a college campus that's sort of like a thinly veiled facsimile of uh, UVA here in the States. And the protagonist is a young black man who um, I think is like an ex ex-con or uh, or a juvenile offender and it's a really rich textured incredible story and you know i don't think that another writer could have told it as well as galaba did but because his identity didn't match the identity of the characters he ran into basically insurmountable obstacles at the point at which he was trying to publish it and he had to self-publish and that's a damn shame do you, do you think the solution is an anonymity where, where everyone just just is anonymous? <laughs> like blind auditions to, uh, well, to be no, a writer? Well, what I'm saying in, in terms of authorship, so so you, you would take on a pseudonym or people wouldn't know your background uh, and, then, and then they would just have to assess the work on its own merits. I mean, I, I think that that's a great way to basically ensure that quality – writing and compelling well-told stories end up rising to the top yeah but you'll never 
get that um, because it's this idea of identity as something inherently valuable to the publishing process um, is increasingly kind of baked into the system. Mm. So, so drawing from your comment there, so so publishers that they see a financial incentive to sort of brand their books with some sort of a minority status. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's sort of it's always been a thing that who the author is matters. Um, and, you know, in years past or decades past, rather, the things that helped you sell books as an author, um, irrespective of the quality of your writing, uh, how to put this, if you were really hot, Go basically. Um, so like when Zadie <laughs> Smith's novel was going out. Uh, her publisher sent around a headshot of her with the press materials. And that's because Zadie Smith is drop-dead gorgeous and people get excited about covering books written by beautiful people. Um, At this point, being really beautiful is probably less of a boon to you in publishing than being from a marginalized background because that's, you know, that's what makes the story compelling now. Uh, but yeah, it's it's always mattered. It's just, you know, what we think matters about it has shifted a little. Again, I've got a very childish view of this. Isn't the existence of someone like you know Shakespeare isn't 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 his abundance and his philosophy uh, isn't that embarrassing to this to this idea of identity matter mattering? I mean, it's not embarrassing to the people who believe it. They would say that Shakespeare was an old dead white man who probably shouldn't have uh, strayed so far from his lane. <laughs> but <laughs> I suppose. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think at this point you're you find people, even within the writing profession, kind of sorting into two fields. And there are those who think that imagination is permissible and desirable for a person who writes fiction. And then there are those who don't. Yes. Now, that's, 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 I, have, I haven't thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right. We've, we've sort of gotten, you, you know, it's Lionel Shriver's sort of attitude, which is, you know, um, I'll write what I want. And then we've got everyone else but the question then remains is you know will the the heavy hitters always in terms of publishing companies and 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 that whole track of being able to write books in that in that way will they always be aligned with the more uh morally upright uh side shall we say seeming side that's a good question i mean i i feel like if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, or you look at what's, you know, what is selling, what people are talking about, the stories that people actually like to read, they're not really reading books based on the author's identity or the author's adherence to, you know, certain progressive pieties in their work. What they're reading for is a good story. And so I think no matter how much the publishing industry entrenches itself in this particular way of looking at creative work as, you know, some kind of a form of activism, you still will never be able to escape the desire of people who read to read good stories. True. Yes. Um, well, I, I've just had a thought about the, the you know, you mentioned who the audience there. So this is all big sky stuff. So, it, it, you know, just don't stay with me. But do, do you think there's too much emphasis placed on what the author supposedly deserves as opposed to what the audience deserves? Because... It seems to be this idea that everyone deserves a job in publishing <laughs> or deserves to be a top 10 author or something. I, I get this sense out there. Uh, and I always like to think of, 
you know, William Blake dying in obscurity or Mozart dying as a pauper or something when I think about what I'm owed. Um, but I wonder if, you know, there should be more focus on creating the best work for audiences in whatever market we're talking about uh, because the book is meant to stand on its own. Um, now, I'm not saying, you know, um, that we can't lift some boats o- along the way. So I'm not just calling for sort of a, a Darwinian approach necessarily. But at the end of the day, it's sort of a bit like an elite sport. It's not, We're not talking about like writing is not for everyone. And maybe we should, you know what I mean? Like, like there seems to be this sort of participation trophy attitude when to me it seems like an elite sport and yeah either you can hack it or you can't like I can't you know what I mean is did any of that make sense yeah I think that what you've identified is something that I've noticed too which is um you know this tendency in certain parts of the conversation I, I don't know how widespread it is I see it a lot but I'm you know I'm in a certain bubble but people talk about being able to do creative work Um, and being paid to do creative work as though it's a prize for being like the best person as opposed to being the best creator for telling the best story. And you can actually see this kind of across the board, um, you know, in terms of comedy, right? Like, you know, there was a point at which people were like, well, you know, Louis C.K. doesn't deserve to be successful. He doesn't deserve to make money off of his art because he's a bad man. And it's like, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that he's funny. And so, yeah, you do run into this um, this question of, you know, there's the people who we consider kind of, you know, through the contemporary lens of, of the culture wars, people who we consider to be good or decent or deserving. And then there's the people who are telling the stories or, you know, in the case of Lucy C.K., the jokes that actually bring people to their feet applauding. And there's not necessarily a ton of overlap between these groups. So it's a conundrum. Well, a short follow there. I have to know while we're in this uh, area, what is your take on allegedly or actually monstrous artists and their work and how we should engage with that? So, you know, like when you hear Thriller, do you turn it off or do you smash the radio and say no? Or do you or do you dance? <laughs> <laughs> I dance while smashing the radio. It's a very expensive okay. habit. No, um, I mean, I, I've, everybody has to kind of draw their own boundaries when it comes to this stuff. But personally... I've never had trouble, um, you know, separating the art from the artist. I think that history is full of examples of really just terrible people, people who I would not, you know, I wouldn't want to be married to them. I wouldn't even want to have them at my home for dinner, but who nevertheless, Mm. you know, do incredible creative work. And I'm cool to, you know, enjoy the product of their efforts, even if I wouldn't personally want to befriend them. A lot of them seem like hard work. Uh, I, Bruce Willis sounds like, you know, I, may he, I know he's a bit sick now, but he sounds like terrible. I wouldn't want to, you know what I mean? Like, so. Bruce yeah, Willis. I've, ne- I've never heard anything terrible about Bruce Willis. Mel Gibson. Um, Kevin Smith did a whole comedy special on how, like, Bruce Willis sucks. Oh. It, and he tells, this, he tells this big story about, his, Kevin Smith goes, oh, wow, he's working with him. And he said, hey, Bruce, like, you know, this guy walked past him and said, "Hey, man, Die Hard," and he's and he goes, "Oh, isn't that great? That must be that must be so good, right?" And Bruce looked at him like dead in the eyes and said, "I hate those people the most." <laughs> <laughs> so then again, that's kind of wonderful. Like, I think that's great in a way. You know, him being so villainous that um, he hates mm. that. Well, well, they 
They do say you should never meet your heroes. Yeah, or follow them on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a question about heroes, and, and I want to know where are our heroes. I feel like everyone whose work uh, I, I respected either remained silent, like Martin Scorsese, or, or they started telling us what they think, Stephen King, Margaret Atwood. Have, have you experienced any confusion, resentment, or, or disappointment of, of people whose work you loved in terms of their responses to the, the oppressive times we live in right now? Because I feel like, you know, we need some of these people to stand up and, 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 and voice their uh, concern about what's happening with, with, with art. Yeah, I have, I don't know, I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, you know, I look at the sort of spate of celebrities weighing in on political questions. And again, I'm old enough to remember when that was sort of like almost frowned upon. Um, you know, there was a point where like, for instance, I think it was the 2004 Academy Awards, Michael Moore got on stage and said something expressly political, uh, you know. Fictitious a, president. Uh, yeah, he's like, or he said, like, shame on you, Mr. Bush or something. And it was sort of it was sort of polarizing at the time. People were like, eh, you know, not the time or the place. We don't really want to hear what you guys think about this, you know, what celebrities think mm. about this. Um, and now seeing how everybody is is weighing in, um, you know, especially like you're talking about actors um, weighing in on on fraught political issues and complicated political issues. I do often wish that they would just take a step back. Um, you know, there are people who are paid to think about this stuff, um, who think about it much more deeply and who deserve a, a megaphone in a way that someone like Alyssa Milano doesn't, I'm sorry to say. Um, but in terms of what's happening within the industries in which we all work, yeah, you know, I do wish that more writers would be brave enough to take a stand on the right of creators to imagine things. Uh, it's been disappointing to see how many writers who are, in fact, in a position where they're not really in any professional peril. You know, they're established. They have their audience. They're, no one's going to take that away. Nevertheless, and I think it's out of fear, feel compelled to go all in on this sort of like privilege disclaiming, cowering, obsequious stance, um, you know, to show that they're down with the cause. I, I don't love seeing that I just because I think it's bad for art, but I wouldn't want to call out anybody particularly or specifically on that front. No, I will. It's, uh, <laughs> St Steven Spielberg. Um, oh, you beat me to it, John. Used, he, he, <laughs> he used the word Latinx endlessly uh, recently, and it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever heard. It was like it, I was, he didn't, you could tell he didn't really know what it meant. He kept saying it like, we're going to look back at the documentaries and, and, uh, and go, what the hell is this guy talking about? Yeah, that's an interesting word, the uh, Latinx or Latinx, um, because like so many of these terms, it, it's coined by people who don't actually speak out loud or like interact face to face with other people. <laughs> <laughs> internet losers. You're saying it's internet losers I, who've come up with this stupid language. I wouldn't say losers. I would just say the extremely online. This is a whole genre of vocabulary that lives largely on the internet. And when it seeps out into the mainstream, you know, yeah, you do start to realize how, how ridiculous it is. Well, what whatever happened to Wimixen? which is the, the, the women spelt with an X. <laughs> that may be the first time that I've heard somebody try to pronounce that word out loud. <laughs> it's difficult. 
<laughs> well, I think it's so dumb that it should be said. Like, if you're going to write it and you're going to say that this is a thing that we should be... Again, like, if no one's going to say this is the worst thing I've ever heard, yeah, let's say it. Let's replace it. Let's well, let's try it on. Let's try it on. No? <laughs> there was no question. You guys go ahead. Right. <laughs> it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to pronounce that word. Uh, well, moving on, uh, you've written a provocative piece blaming hashtag me too for the toning down of Game of Thrones. Uh, the earlier seasons were definitely more sexy. They showed more flesh and were more bloodthirsty. Uh, tell us, how did Me Too kill Game of Thrones? Well, so I have to say, I have to say that that headline is not of my choosing and not what I would have chosen. Um, but I think you can certainly see the impact of Me Too on Game of Thrones. Um, the, you know, and the new series is actually quite good. And while it's got less naked flesh in it and i think that you know the the sex scenes could probably be spicier um you know i don't i don't notice it as a a detriment to the show because i think the writing and the storytelling is quite good on its own um but the idea of being responsive in the creation of a new series from this world to people who were so critical in this one particular way of the previous series, I think that that's a little bit, I don't know, there's something about it that that I find frustrating. I feel like, you know, there's this attempt to kind of eat their cake and have it, um, that, you know, we want to delve back into this world, you know, the Game of Thrones world that got us such incredible ratings, everyone loved it, but we also, you know, want to update it to adhere to these sort of progressive mores, which, you know, these are things that like, the fan base of the show didn't really care about. You know, people who are sort of professionally offended on the internet made a lot of noise about this. And I'm not sure that those are the people who we want to necessarily be consulting or at least consulting heavily when it comes to telling a new story. You know, are they really going to be the best expert on what makes for a compelling story? Yeah, well, Game of Thrones uh, is a show that, you know, although it's fictitious, is, is set in a much earlier time historically where, you know, bad shit happened uh, to loads of people, including women. Women often got the raw end of the bargain. Uh, now, you know, this this is not a kid's show. It's a show written by adults for adults. Uh, can we no longer be trusted to see the old Game of Thrones without turning into Harvey Weinstein? Because is there a larger problem of like infantilization going on here, maybe? Yeah, I think there is. And it's interesting. I actually just rewatched all of Game of Thrones um, because I, you know, I wanted to revisit that story. And that show is incredibly critical of the patriarchal system in which its characters live. You know, there's a lot that's, you know, it's not a morality play, but it's as explicit as it can be, you know, without sort of breaking the fourth wall and taking away from the story. There's this point in um, maybe it's like the fourth or fifth season where Cersei Lannister says everywhere in the world they hurt little girls. And I mean, like how much more in your face can you be Um you know, about the the shortcomings of the patriarchy, um, you know, especially as applied in a world like that. So, yeah, I do think that there is this risk of kind of dumbing down the, the messages to the sort of lowest common denominator of somebody who just wants to be punched in the face with morality when they turn on the television. And that's um, that's unfortunate because it's not what most people want. 
And rereading your piece, I'm glad you rewatched it all because this this sort of pertains to that. You can give us a, a, a better sense of, of how it all went over time. But after reading your piece again, I was just struck by how uh, the <laughs> now I'm of this camp, how they totally blew it. You know what I mean? The first few seasons, I think, well, actually, I say few. I reckon the first maybe six were probably outstanding. Uh, they seemed, but more to the point, they seemed rock and roll or punk rock, you know? Bad manners, like proudly rubbing our faces in the horrors of humanity, murder, incest, rape, and power plays, which is, I think, what people were, attra- were, attra- were attracted to. Then one summer, they rolled back in having done the work, you know, all in capitals, and produced, you know, they just took a left turn and, and, and gave us the ending we got. Now, whatever inspiration gave us the Red Wedding, I feel, was, was totally gone. It was, uh, um, which that episode is, is, is legendary. It's just like, it's so awful and so painfully true. It's, it's true in the way that, you know, that movie Boys Don't Cry is true. Or, or Lars von Trier's some of his movies are true in that way you go oh my god that hurts so much but it's true uh, and and they were they it felt like they did they didn't want to boldly go anymore now if we just pull back you know talk about game of thrones but but in general where if, if you agree that is but where is that rock and roll or that punk spirit in art like why why is everyone being so considerate you know i mean i'm thinking of the scene um of Cersei and Jamie, for instance, having se- incestuous sex in the tomb of their dead love child. You know, that's punk rock. You know, <laughs> like what, what? What? What happened? What happened, Kat? So punk rock. Um, oh gosh, I have so many thoughts about because there there are a lot of threads that kind of shoot off from everything that you just said. I mean, my my first thought is that yes, you know, there was a, a definite decline in quality in the writing starting around starting around season six, but definitely moving into season seven and then especially season eight. Um, and I was just thinking about how uh, as we as we concluded our rewatch, uh, my husband turned to me at some point. I think during the scene where they're trying to decide how to choose their next king he said they really whizzed this down their leg didn't they (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like yep yeah they did whizzed it down their leg um of course that's a dreadful scene that is a dread that is the stupidest (laughs) scene i've ever seen it's totally against the that because you picture we're getting geeking out a bit now but there's that there's that magical stuff when when max von sidiao is like attached to he was a tree man or something and like we're seeing visions from the future and you're like get it's you're getting this awe and one you're like oh my god this story is bigger than my brain and then suddenly it just cuts to a council meeting like like a local council meeting where they go oh yeah we're just gonna pick a project leader oh let's let it be brand yeah okay. yeah All yeah right. you know I, I cringed so hard that you know a vital organ nearly came out of my mouth but um <laughs> i mean the thing about that is not necessarily i don't know that's an interesting that's an interesting question okay because so two things happened one you had the show attempting, I think, in real time to be responsive to some of the criticisms that started to dog it around the time that um, that Sansa was raped on her wedding night and everyone was like, I'm never watching this show again. Of course, the people who were, you know, saying they were never going to watch this show again because of that, like, clearly had not been paying attention to the show up until that. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Mm. Um, so there was this attempt to be responsive, I think, to to that. But also they ran out of source material. You know, George R. Yes. R. Martin had not written something that they not only could crib from, but were obliged to be faithful to. You know, he only could tell them the broad strokes of how the story was supposed to end. And 
I think that when they had to basically make it up, um, yeah, you saw the quality in the storytelling just kind of fall off a cliff. What do you think of the idea, Kat, that the most dangerous and interesting stuff was mm, arguably, not that I've read the source material, but I'm guessing was set in stone. So we don't get to have a meeting about the Red Wedding not being in the show. We don't get to have a meeting about you know, the incest. We don't get to have a meeting about some of this stuff, you know, like we're all the people just buffing off the edges, you know, that's set in stone and you go, and you can always stick behind that defense of, well, this is, this is the text of the author and we mustn't, uh, Mm -hmm. we mustn't go against what the author says, which is really a way of saying, go away and we want to do something good and not something, you know, um, easy. So I feel like once they, when we got a sense of what they could do, uh, I mean, I saw people with wearing plot armor. There were, there were fan favorites wearing plot armor, just like who couldn't be killed. There were hookups, celebrity hookups, like just people. They're like, what if these two got together? And I'm like, what are you doing? And it was just, it became a Comic-Con celebration. There was a coffee cup left on set, like, which I think said everything to me, like, which they ended up, um, it like CG'd it out. It was in the in the actual show. Yes, like some that's right. No, yeah, that, that styrofoam cup. Never forget. Never forget <laughs> the styrofoam cup. That is the show. That's what happened. They were too busy. They were doing a victory lap. That's that 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 scene where they're all the guy the the creators are actually in the scene. That is the biggest um, rap party ever. They were like, let's just have an expensive rap party and film it and put it in the show. Yeah. Was there a question in there? <laughs> I, just, I just had to get all that out you know i'm so annoyed i ha- i just i i can't stand i was in, in the question was about you know do you think that the 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 structural things you know were that were they able to hide behind his his great source material and being faithful to it and then when they ran out and did what they had to do were the forces the anti-creativity forces, which is to be safe, to, yeah, to do, I don't know, like sensitivity, uh, p- politically expedient things to get sensitivity readers in. And, you know, did that sort of, did that machine take over at the end? I think that that, I mean, I, I have no idea, but I think that you're probably onto something. I mean, being able to point to source material that's written in a particular way that contains certain plot points and certain themes. I mean, you know, George R. R. Martin's books are very big on subverting a lot of the tropes that the show kind of leaned into later. You know, for Ned Stark's head to be removed in the ninth episode of the first season, like he, you think he's the hero, and then they kill him. And, I mean, that, that's for a reason. That show was written, I mean, the book and the books were written to deconstruct a lot of your sort of expectations of, yeah, people wearing plot armor, you know, of, of knowing who your hero is and getting to root for him, sort of safe in the knowledge that he won't be killed. So once there weren't books to rely on and to be faithful to um, and a spirit, you know, corresponding to be faithful to. Yeah, I, I think that you probably are onto something that it freed them to make certain choices that were ultimately, you know, maybe politically expedient, but certainly terrible in terms of what it did to the storytelling. Such shame. It's, it's, it's OJ level fall from grace. Like greatest, like just amazing, incre- the greatest athlete to the worst monster, like that, you know? <laughs> Although there were real people killed there, so I'm sorry. If, you know, I, shouldn't equi- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't make that connection. So, Kat, you can disavow that. I will accept <laughs> maybe, all maybe, of the Maybe illegal... you want to go back and take that out of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm leaving it in. I don't go, I'm leaving it in. I deserve what I get, all right? <laughs> 
Well, seeing as we're, we're, we're knee-deep in film and TV, I, I'd love to get your perspective on the portrayal of women these days in, well, I guess we can narrow it down to American TV and movie. Uh, are, you, are you annoyed by the endless slay queens and the sassy boss bitches that, that get, get rolled out? A little bit, yeah. I mean, just because it's boring, right? It's a little one note. Um, on the other hand, I mean, there are certainly a lot of really great stories being told. I mean, we're certainly in like a moment where there are like great female characters, you know, being created. And so that's that's not a bad thing. But yeah, I guess there's something about the idea that, you know, we're going to create a strong female character and the way that she's going to be strong is that she's basically going to be a man, but with girl parts. Like there's, yeah, maybe something about that that's a little bit ridiculous to me. She-Hulk. She-Hulk. Attorney at law. <laughs> I have not actually watched that show, so I, I can't I can't weigh in. No, well, it's for kids. I don't I don't watch it either. But but I have seen enough. There's a scene where she lectures the Hulk, who's another dumb character. I'm wondering what I'm talking about. It's Marvel. But but like she lectures the lectures the Hulk, and the look on his face, he's nodding along. He's going hmm hmm, just like taking the licks, like you know. And she's saying. Oh, <laughs> sort of stuff does she say ricky it's like you know oh i walk around i get cat, cat i get cat cold, cold yeah. and stuff and he's like mm, mm. Mm, yeah so to me that's um that really has less to do with you know women or female characters and more to do with this tendency of of writers to break the fourth wall in an attempt to like you know instill the proper messages into a show make sure that like 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 i said you know you got to punch people right in the face with your moral message you can't just kind of do it in a subtle way but do you think that um like, what's your view on on morality and, and fiction and storytelling? Because, you know, I mean, what obligations uh, and responsibilities do, do, do artists have? Oh, I, I think that our responsibility is to our work, and that's really it. Um, you know, so if you're, if you're a writer, if you're a writer of fiction, whether it's, you know, on a screen or in the pages of a book, your responsibility is to your story, and you have to tell your story. Um, morality does not enter into it unless that's the story you're writing if you're writing a morality play then yes you know for sure um but this idea that creators need to serve as um like role models um and and not just in terms of you know what they put on the page but in terms of how they behave in their personal lives i, I don't know i i think that that's problematic in a lot of ways yeah well i mean i i ta- i um i i, I taught some screenwriting to some kids and some students and I, I was trying to impress upon them like I'd show them something like a race ahead and I'd say you know or, or whatever I'd show them and their first interestingly their first response was always to look at a film from a very paint by numbers moral sort of lens and they had trouble uh, or when they correctly identified what the what someone was the filmmaker or the storyteller was trying to do to them uh, in terms of making them feel bad uh, and feel that they got angry at that and I'm like no no it's he's that's what that's what they want like you know like and David Lynch he wants you to have a a bad time he doesn't care about he doesn't want you to prosper he wants you to hurt <laughs> and to maybe never recover yeah David like, Lynch like, does not so, want the best for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. Though. But they, but they're used to seeing. Have you experienced this? That people that, that there seems to be this idea out there that mo- that stories are a, a manual for your life. They've all got to be eat, pray, love, or something, or they've all got to be, you know, about how uh, uh, whichever um, minority was secretly behind the moon landing or or whatever. Like like that seems to be a trope now. We go, okay, it was really done by these people, and you go, well, that's it. Might be a good movie. I, I don't know, but uh, so. 
it's um uh, do you do you, do you find that there's this very one-dimensional sort of view out there yeah i think that maybe some of what you're pointing at is not even about a desire to see moral messages in you know in stories and in, in film but about a desire to never feel uncomfortable and we do live in that world you know where people increasingly seek out and expect a frictionless experience and this is true not just in terms of what kind of stories they're consuming but also in terms of like when i order a pizza i don't want to have to go through the anxiety of calling somebody and speaking to them on the phone to order the pizza i want to do it on an app and i never want to have contact with another human being and same goes for something like dating and i can't help thinking that you know this is something that started in a a broader place and it has just sort of seeped into everything, including storytelling. And, you know, on the one hand, I want to live in a world where writers and creators are brave enough to break people's hearts. Um, on the other hand, I am absolutely one of these people where if I'm, I'm watching a movie that has a dog in it, I stop it and I Google whether the dog dies so I can prepare myself. Um, so I yeah, don't know. Don't, if don't worry necessarily... about all the humans that die. It's it's whether the dog gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't I don't practice what I preach on that front as a consumer. Although as an author, um, I do I did write a, a cat death into No One Will Miss Her that upset people a great deal, and people were like, "I'm put, you know, I'm not going to finish this book because this cat died," and I'm like. The cat died 15 chapters after somebody found a severed human nose in a garbage disposal. But that wasn't off-putting to you. It was just the cat. Like, what priorities? But in the movie, in the movie, not only will the cat not die, it will be saved in the first 10 minutes by the hero. Right. And then he'll turn to the camera and speak for five minutes eloquently about the dangers of white privilege. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, well, John and I, we, we, we watched Dancer in the Dark recently for a, sort of a, another podcast we do uh, where we review movies. Uh, and we were totally busted up, weren't we, John? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, it's funny you should say about the, the, the word you said, Kat, there was f this frictionless thing. And I'd forgotten how I'd pushed hard works out of my life a little bit. Uh, and we, we watched this and I was, I was um, inconsolable for so long, like, like minutes, minutes and minutes afterwards. And uh, I had to tell my wife, and I've already said this, I might as well out myself. I, I, just, I came in and saw her and I said, I've cried so much that I need to have a shower. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Like it just, it was, but, but, but having said that, I went through an experience. Like we used to go to the cinema at, at a time, at a specific time and place. It's hard on streaming because stuff's going on. You know, it's just content. Whereas you used to go and go, okay, you know, I know this filmmaker or whatever, or I know, sort of know what I'm in for, but not really. And then you go and you have this feeling like, like I was a wreck, but then the next day I felt, I felt the way I was meant to. I felt catharsis and, and it was, it was beautiful. I could see the beauty. So I feel like that's been missing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a privilege to be able to feel things that deeply and, and to be able to have a, a story do that to you. And the idea of losing that, you know, kind of on a species level that is a tragic idea isn't it uh, would, would you have been so busted up if you watched it on your apple watch <laughs> well uh, how you watch it does feed yeah, into I it think but so. it, I, 
Yeah, so totally. But no, you you you're right there, Kat. I I, I feel like we've this is. I want more of more of this. So uh, I, we're fast running out of time, and I I would love to hear about your your new book, if you wouldn't mind. Oh yeah, I'd be delighted. Um, my new book comes out in the U.S. on um, January tenth, twenty twenty three. I don't know what that means for Australia, um, but it's called "You Must Remember This," and it is a murder mystery. Uh, it's a sort of a knives out meets the notebook gothic murder mystery um, that takes place on the coast of Maine uh, on Christmas Eve and then also in flashback to the 1940s. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I've always struggled to talk about the plots of my books because, um, you know, it's obviously as a, a writer of thrillers and mysteries, you don't want to give too much away. But this story begins... Um, with a fractured family gathered at the home of their matriarch in Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, Miriam. She is suffering from dementia. She's sort of on her way out. And when she dies, she's going to leave behind a $20 million fortune that her children are already starting to kind of squabble over. And on Christmas Eve, she slips out of the house. She walks onto the frozen cove. Uh, she falls through the ice and she dies. And it's a terrible accident. Or is it? And uh, her granddaughter, Delphine, becomes convinced that maybe something untoward happened to her grandmother. And so the story tracks both, uh, you know, Delphine's investigation into her grandmother's death and, and her life. And then as a reader, you also flash back in time to Miriam's youth. Um, you find out how she met the man who she would marry um, and made a series of decisions that would change her life and haunt her for the rest of it. And in the end, uh, things wrap up with a twist. That's all I'll say about that. Just quickly, what uh, what is it about the, the mystery genre that you're drawn to? Gosh, I mean, these are the kind of stories that I love to read. And so I think also just it makes sense that they're the kind of stories I love to tell. Um, I love the puzzle of it, you know, and I love the the constructing backwards that you do when you're writing a story that leads up to um, a twist that you have to kind of keep hidden throughout. You know, you have to build all these layers around it so that your reader understands that something is there. Um, you know, they maybe catch little glimpses of, of like a piece of it, but they don't know the whole thing. You kind of keep it shrouded. And at the same time, as they're taking this journey towards it, like peeling away the layers, that has to be interesting in its own right. So it's just, it's a fun challenge to construct a story in that way. That sounds great, and I'll have to check it out. Um, I, I appreciate, I greatly appreciate the Casablanca reference. I think that's um, people people deserve that. <laughs> now, Kat, we're, we're fast running out of time. In fact, we are out of time. But we we have a final question we ask uh, all of our guests, and that is, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh gosh, um, what I'm reading right now, I'm actually this is a boring answer, but I'm rereading Tara Isabella Burton's Social Creature because I'm working on a story for which it is um, sort of a, a point of inspiration. That's okay. We 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 we, we do hear all sorts of fun people. I hear a lot of I'm reviewing this book yeah. for you know I get a read. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kat, for, for being so generous with your time and um, and and uh, and great insights on on something we don't get to talk about enough: fiction and storytelling and whatnot. I think people are so wrapped up in the cultural wars we don't really get to 
we don't we don't going to delve into this stuff too much. So thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, Kat, if people want to follow you, uh, are you on social media? Can they do that via, say, Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, you can find me on all of the platforms. Facebook, I've been totally neglecting, uh, so maybe don't look for me there. But um, it's uh, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kat Rosenfield. It's Rosenfield with an I in it, not Rosenfeld. And yeah, I would be delighted to have anybody follow me. And I, I, I encourage everyone to listen to uh, Kat's podcast, uh, Feminine Chaos, which is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience.